This is Dog Storian. Stories about dogs. And their people. And related species. Like cats. And this is me, Justina. And this is me, Brian. Oh. I feel kind of odd about this. About what? I mean, we set out to have a podcast about dogs, but now we keep talking about other species, not even cats. There's a bit of that, yes. But without the animal that we're going to be talking about today, there wouldn't be any dogs. Is this like a chicken or the egg thing? <laughs> kind of. Imagine a world where man's best friend is the cat. Sure you wish. <laughs> yes, I do. So thank you for finding time to talk to us first. And maybe you could introduce yourself? Well, I am uh, Luigi Boitani. Uh, at the moment, I have uh, an emeritus position at the University of Rome, La Sapienza, where I've been uh, teaching uh, animal ecology and conservation biology for the past 40 years. I have been working on wolves uh, since uh, 1972 and uh, never stopped. And I still have projects going on uh, in the field uh, in uh, mostly in Italy and in Europe. I am the chair of the Large Carnivore Initiative for Europe, which is a, a specialist group for the Species Survival Commission of the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. In that uh, capacity, I'm uh, the head of a group of experts, of some 50 experts uh, covering uh, all species and all countries in Europe, mostly dealing with management and conservation issues. I never worked uh, scientifically on dogs. But I have always said a dog, of course. That was one of my first questions, actually. Why wolves? And what is your current situation with dogs? Well, I always said dogs. At the moment, I don't have one because my dog died of old age a few months ago. And I'm traveling a lot and then this coronavirus problems. So I've been waiting for the right moment to get another one. But I will certainly get another one soon. I can't uh, live uh, without. The reason for wolves uh, is actually an, an accident. I studied wildlife biology in the uh, U.S. I came back to Italy with a very clear idea what I wanted to do. I actually want to study the feral goats in the islands of Monte Cristo. <laughs> Nothing to do with wolves. But um, my friends at WWF Italy asked me if I could take care of just a one-month consultancy of uh, just finding out more about the walls of Italy. And I said, yes, I mean, a month will not change my life and actually changed my life. It definitely sounds like something wolves and dogs do. Just one look, everything starts going in another direction. Yeah. So we started on a, a micro level with like your personal history. Could we do a leap now and talk about the history of wolves? Where do they come from and what is their background? No, wolves have been there for a long, long time. They are one of the most adaptable species I can think of, probably compared to rats and humans only. As a matter of fact, wolves have one of the largest distribution area of all the species that we know. They are spread from the Arctic region, most of uh, North America, they used to be over most of North America, all of Eurasia, down to the deserts of um, Saudi Arabia and uh, down into India. So they cover a huge range of habitats because they are so adaptable to a variety of, uh, of ecological situations. And they change morphologically. They change a lot. 
You can go from the large wolf of the north, completely white in uh, the Arctic regions, uh, down to the jackal-like animals living in the desert of Saudi Arabia, of a very pale beige color, really very, very adaptable. And people um, usually make a mistake of uh, thinking of the wolf like the animals of the beast of the wilderness, the animals living uh, in the north or up in the mountains, living in the forest. That couldn't be more wrong. They can live anywhere. As a matter of fact, if we don't kill them, they could live in the gardens in our backyard without any problems. So the best definition of wolf habitat was given by a friend of mine, a biologist in North America a long time ago, who said, you know, the best wolf habitat for wolf is anywhere where there is anything to eat and where they are not killed. And because they are so flexible in their biology, they were obviously the best candidate for domestication by humans. And we took advantage of that flexibility to extract the dog. So the dog is, um, in my definition, is a, a bad copy of a wolf. Could you maybe elaborate a bit about that flexibility? What exactly makes it so flexible? Well, it's so flexible because they can eat anything. I mean, wolves can survive from garbage to mice to vegetation to large moose or deer, big prey, and muskox or whatever. So they are very flexible. They have a very flexible uh, social uh, system. So the, the social system is basically a pair, mother and father, and the litter of the year plus a few other of the previous years. These packs can be from 2 to 20, so extremely flexible. Wolves can endure famine, can endure going without food for a week, 10 days, and uh, still survive. They have a territorial system that is, again, very flexible depending on the resources available on the land. So you can have uh, territories of 30 square kilometers, and you have territories of 3,000 square kilometers, depending on the amount of food available. So they can really adapt to any, any sort of situation. The only kind of habitat where they do have a problem is actually tropical forest because uh, wolves hunt by chasing animals, and they certainly cannot chase animals in a tropical forest, in a thick forest. I guess mountains can also be tricky in some situations. Yep. So this is where I start scratching my head. Wolves are super adaptable. They can eat most of the things. Why would they then choose to go towards human settlements? What's the purpose? Especially if humans were sending clear signals that they don't want this animal around, maybe they even perceived wolf as a competitor. No, the wolf was not a competitor. And, and I would reverse the question, why, why actually human didn't take advantage of wolves earlier than what they did? <laughs> you know, wolves are very intelligent and very adaptable, as I said. In doing so, they test their environment all the time, testing uh, new prey, testing new new areas where to go, testing new habitats. You know, they disperse over long, long distances. Young wolves leave a, a pack, the family, when they are two years old, about two years old. In this dispersal movement, they can travel a 1,500 kilometers. So they can really go over long, long distances. In, in doing so, they test a variety of new habitats and uh, they test new prey. And so it makes 
to be very logic thinking of walls testing uh, the outskirts of a human village or um, testing uh, humans too. And they do it here too. They do it all the time. And they will continue to do even more in the, in the future. They come close to village. In Italy, we do have walls in the outskirts of Florence, of Roma, big cities. So they are not the animals of the wilderness. If you don't kill them, you can, you can have them downtown in, in, your, in your town. So it's only a matter of acceptance by, by humans. So if you take the story back to the beginning of domestication, it's obvious that wolves came close to village, and it's obvious that humans were actually curious about these animals coming around and looking for food, where that food could be the remain of the food of humans, but could also be the human themselves. But humans actually are a very easy means to protect themselves, you know, sticks and arrows and, and, and later guns. So the, the wolves, being intelligent, learn very quickly that humans are actually dangerous. They're not very easy prey. What happens is that humans actually were regular prey of wolves until humans invented guns. And so with guns, we could kill the wolves from a distance. And wolves learn that humans can be dangerous even if they are distant. And so they kept the distance. Is there, I don't know, some kind of DNA or fossil evidence of what you just said? I mean, that prior to long-distance weapons like guns, that wolves actually preyed on humans? Oh, yeah. There, is a, there are plenty of publications and books uh, listing all the people killed uh, by, by wolves. Uh, we have this uh, evidence, uh, especially in Europe. In France, there is a book with thick like that. And in Italy, too, several publications with a list of the names. This list was, was kept by the parish. You know, they, they kept the record of natality and mortality. And for each person dying, they would put the why. And so you will see that the majority of, uh, of human victims of wolves were kids, young people taking uh, the sheep out to pastures and they would be easily killed. This was uh, regular until uh, 1700. When humans invented the guns, suddenly the numbers stopped. Today, it's extremely rare that wolves kill humans. It happens sometimes. We do have some cases in North America and so it happens sometimes. I think you just made me realize what a product of the 20th century I am. I always thought this fear of wolves was exaggerated because in my lifetime, they learned to stay away from us because of guns, as you say, whereas previous generations didn't have that luxury. But even, even now, I mean, uh, just to tell you why wolves would test and take advantage of any situation. One case of a person killed by wolves, for example, is a couple of you know, a few years ago was in Alaska where a girl living in a village near the forest went jogging, uh, went jogging in, in, in the forest. And so she was, she was running and was running, listening with earplug. So she couldn't hear the wolves coming in. And she was running. Now, a, a girl running, what is it in the eyes of a wolf? A prey, a prey running away. And that's so, so extremely obvious, logical, to be expected that the wolves would kill. On the other, but if she had not had the earphone, she would have heard the wolves and she could easily have stopped and go back and say, boom, you know, and the wolves would probably disappear. 
because wolves, you know, are afraid of, of humans if humans act accordingly. But if humans persist in behaving as a prey, there is no way out. What, what would you tell to a kid who is afraid of dogs in the street? Don't run. No, that's what my mother used to tell me. What it means, don't be a prey. Yeah, that's what I learned the hard way. I was five and I started running away from a German shepherd. Yeah, and it means don't be a prey. And it means don't be a prey. Don't, don't send a signal of, of weakness, of vulnerability. I guess this is also one of the things that the dog inherited from the wolf. Which brings me to the next question. What of wolf is still remaining in a dog? Ah, that's a big, big question. You know, you, you are comparing one unit, which is a wolf, which in spite of its uh, adaptability and flexibility is quite consistent. <laughs> All wolves are the same. And the other entity, a dog, what is it? You know, from a chihuahua to a dane and everything in between, what are we comparing? Some of the dogs are pretty wild and ancient breed. Some are extremely modern, totally spoiled by human contiguity. So I'm, I'm always embarrassed of answering this question because some, some dogs certainly have uh, maintained a lot of wolves, some others not. Yeah, of course, they still have two ears and four legs and one tail and, and bark and, and, or try to bark or whatever. But, you know, that's why I say that the dog, I love dogs, as you, as you can imagine. That's why I say that dogs are a bad copy. I only read that dogs are so-called young copy of a wolf, meaning that they're sort of stuck in the teenage phase of a wolf. Well, you know, we do have what we have done, humans, to the wolf is to extract and emphasize skills, capacity or physical uh, features that we wanted. So we have some dogs that run faster than wolves. We have some dogs that, that can bite stronger than wolves. We have some dogs that are more social. So we have dogs that individually, I mean, speaking of breed, can perform better than wolves. But if you take all together, the wolf is definitely better than any dog because uh, it, it has all the qualities together. But, and, and you see, because they are so adaptable, we want to have uh, wolves that could uh, outrun our prey. Okay, we invented the, the breed uh, that can run fast after a prey for, you know, hunting dogs. We wanted to have uh, wolves that could be stronger than bears. Fine, we invented the mastiff and so on and so on. And we selected what we wanted and we selected for different breed. Nobody in the past thought of uh, keeping the wolf as it is just because it's such a wonderful mix of qualities. This came quite later. And now people actually have invented all sorts of uh, breed that are more similar to wolves, like the, the Dutch wolf or the, the Italian wolf or the Czechoslovakian wolves. These are nice, nice mongrels. And um, I don't like them at all because I love wolves and I love dogs. And I, I don't like animals that looks like wolves 
but actually they are they are not walls. So you can see that. So what is it? It's the worst of the copies that we ever made of walls. Why do you want to have a walls with you? You just spoil it. You destroy it. You want to have a dog with you, not a wolf. A wolf belongs to the to the wild, not to the house. Yeah, exactly. I'm also wondering whether hybridization happens between wolves and dogs, like when their paths cross. Yes. In North America, for example, especially in the Northwest, there are a lot of, uh, there are many black wolves. Even in Yellowstone, there are black wolves. There was a nice study published a few years ago that showed that those black animals are actually evidence of uh, uh, hybridization long time ago, long, long time. But in uh, Europe, we also have many uh, examples of uh, black wolves, and genetics have shown that this is the results of recent hybridization cases. So we do have black wolves uh, in Italy and uh, Serbia and a few other places I can't remember now. So that's the evidence for, for hybridization. I mean, they are the same species, of course. They breed and they, they are fertile for older generations. So is there any danger of the wolf becoming extinct because of this admixture? Sure. It could be swamped. could be swamped by, the, by dogs. That's a, another of the many good things that we humans have done to nature. It's another way of destroying species, just to swamp them with our... On the other hand, of all the biomass, of all the vertebrates on Earth, wild vertebrates are only 3%. 25% are humans, and the other almost 75, 75% or whatever, 72, it's livestock. The domestic animals that we have produced, millions and millions of, uh, of cattle and sheep and, and dogs and cats. Too many co- dogs and too many cats around, but also too many sheep and too many cattle. <laughs> yeah, to me it sounds like an insane amount. When you think about it, the sole purpose of this huge number of animals is to satisfy such a minor part of nature. Can you speculate what the numbers could be if we would let nature self-regulate? Maybe we can make it a bit more simple and take one population. How would the map of wolves would look if humans would stop interfering? Well, you know, people are um, afraid of, uh, of uh, giving, uh, giving up the ground to wildlife. And uh, they want to keep wildlife at bay. Only, only harmless animals uh, are allowed uh, nearby. But humans have a very different, uh, very strange uh, understanding of what is uh, a harmless uh, species. They think, for example, that a nice roe deer is harmless. Well, try to get closer to a male roe deer when <laughs> it's the, the right season. That's not certainly harmless. At the same time, we can have wolves around. I mean, I'm talking now from Tuscany, my house in Tuscany, and I do have wolves in the forest down there. I found a wolf then, uh, 300 meters from my house. Of course, I don't keep I don't keep uh, small livestock around because I prefer to have wolves than than, than sheep. I only have one big ho- horse because I know that he is able to defend himself. But that's it. Yeah, that is pretty incredible. I had no idea that wolves come so close to human settlements these days, especially when most of our territories are fenced off and there's so much noise that we produce. And speaking about that, what factors do wolves avoid most? Is it noise or is it sufficient just seeing the humans walking around? 
Well, no, they are they are afraid of humans because they still have in their mind the idea that humans are are dangerous. Give them time. If we continue not to to harass them, they will certainly be more and more bold. As a matter of fact, the frequency of bold wolves in Europe is slowly increasing. First of all, because there are more wolves in Europe. And secondly, probably because uh, the frequency of boldness is increasing. I can't really quantify this process. We don't have data for that, but it's just a sensation that I have. And it is true that sooner or later, you know, we should uh, send a reminder to wolves that humans are dangerous. <laughs> and when I say that, it means, you know, some, a shooting in the air or shooting with, with rubber bullets or something like that so that they keep track of our being nasty. Okay, so what makes me really curious now is what you said about wolves keeping in mind. It sounded as if they had an idea about humans. Uh, how does this understanding, this wolf intelligence work? I mean, how do they keep this memory? How do they realize there's danger? Is it just pure instinct or like a reflex? Wolves are a, a highly cultural species. Because they live in, in society, they live in groups, and the mother teach the young animals how to behave. So they learn how to cross the street. They learn how to cope with traffic lights. They learn how to cope with uh, the human noise. They learn how to cope with dogs, like they learn how to hunt. Same thing. Why? Why you? You would not be surprised, of course, when you think that you know that a young wolf uh, knows how to hunt a deer. Partly is genetic, but partly is actually learned behavior. We did it only once, some thirty years ago, to put a sheep in a, in an enclosure of a, a captive. Uh, pack of wolves that had never seen a sheep before. They didn't know what to do. Yeah, eventually they killed it, but it was an awful vision. It was not that kind of clean, efficient, perfect killing that you see when a good wolf knows how to do it. And these were the wolves which never hunted before, correct? No, was born in captivity. Hmm. And about wolves in captivity, what I come to learn is that there is a big difference between the wolf and the so-called wilderness and the ones which are hand-reared by humans. Is there actually a big difference or is it just a faulty misconception of mine? If you keep a wolf in captivity, you deprive the wolf from all his learning of dealing with the nature, with the wild environments. So he will retain only that is ingrained in his uh, genetic uh, pool. He doesn't know how to cope with the, how should I say, with the new things. When a small wolf follows his mother and father and pack, there is a, a learning curve for the first few months where he learns his territory. He learns how to cope with the other member of the pack, how to cope with intruders, how to cope with uh, the prey that is there. So if the prey is deer, he will learn how to hunt deer. Uh, he will learn how to hunt moose or how to hunt uh, rabbits or hare, whatever. But this learning is essential to make it fit for that particular environment. You know, to make an, an, an extreme example, if you 
want to reintroduce walls to Italy, and you take walls from uh, Sweden and take it and bring it here, I, I guess he would die of a heart attack immediately <laughs> because he has never seen, he doesn't know how to, how to handle the human density here and how to handle the prey that are here and vice versa. If you take a wall from Italy and bring it to, to Sweden and say, what the hell is a moose? How do I kill it? I remember a person calling me from um, south of Naples and say, yeah, I know that you're working on walls and um, I love walls, I love dogs. Uh, and um, so I need your uh, advice because I bought a wolf pup and I kept it here at home for six months and it destroyed my house, destroyed everything. And I said, yes, I can imagine. I'm asking you because I love this animal. So, so I would like to release it in a nice place and say, wait a minute. And so that was the beginning of a, a, a two hours phone call. And I drove my car down to Naples, took the whole evening, a dinner, lots of wine, and I drove back to Rome with the wolf in my car. And I put it in the zoo where he stayed for uh, more than 12 years. It was a huge white wolf, very nice, beautiful. And every time I went to the zoo, he recognized me because I kept it at home for five days until I found accommodation for him at the zoo. And, so, and he recognized me for life. It was beautiful. But uh, I mean, you can't keep a wolf at home. Of course you can. But if you do it, it means that you don't love wolves. You don't love animals in general. You don't understand anything about human-animals relationship. Yeah, this is crazy. I keep coming across examples like this, the hybrid dogs and the trouble people have with them. I mean, so many of them end up in shelters. It just seems to be a very active discussion, I guess. Science has already provided evidence for this. My friend, uh, Eric Zeman, now he died. I worked with him um, 40 years ago. He was um, an etologist, wolf etologist, who was working with Conrad Lawrence and uh, he, he produced a lot of papers on the behavior of, of wolves. But his, his study was actually, uh, the early study was on hybrids, behavior of hybrids. And he was crossing uh, the big poodles with, with wolves. And he showed with evidence that, you know, you may have some nice hybrids. You may have. And they may behave nicely for months maybe a year or two, and one day, without you knowing why, something makes click in their mind, and they just destroy everything or are aggressive. So the, in one word, hybrids are unpredictable. You can be lucky that nothing happened, but most of the time something happened, and you want to challenge your uh, good luck? Go ahead. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I would like to live with such a ticking time bomb. It's really tricky raising such a creature, if worth it at all. This makes me think, for example, about the differences in socialization of wolves and dogs. In the case of dogs, the so-called socialization window is relatively long. It depends on a breed, but generally it can last, I think, up to 12 weeks. And it's enough for a human just to have some contact with a dog daily. I think up to 90 minutes could be enough. With wolves, on the other hand, the pups need 24-7 supervision. And they need that 
constant contact with people for a month just so that they could develop some sort of connection and they wouldn't be so shy in the vicinity of people. So I guess hybrids would fall somewhere in between. And uh, that sounds like a, a lot of work to be asked from a breeder. I certainly hope that they do that, but I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like really, really challenging task. Yeah, well, anyway, to make the story very short, you don't want to, to have uh, wolves or hybrids at home. <laughs> we do have dogs. We have more than 600 recognized breeds, plus uh, millions of mongrels that are sometimes even better than the regular breeds. So why the hell do you want to have a wolves or a hybrid? Pick another one. Yeah, why do people want to have panthers or tigers at home? They simply make them look cool. <laughs> I, for example, I have always loved uh, hunting dogs. So are you a hunter yourself? No, not at all. I'm not a hunter. But it's, uh, it's beautiful to have a good hunting dog to, to take a walk in the forest because they are an extension of your senses. They let you feel the environment much more than uh, you would be able to do on your own. This is a wonderful comparison. This is actually how I think about dog-human relationship. We sort of extend ourselves through dogs, try to realize some missing abilities. It is a really beautiful connection, and it amazes me to think how it started in such a rather utilitarian way. Yeah, and in Italy, for example, uh, we do have this uh, big uh, sheep dog, uh, guarding dogs, you know, like the Maremma, Maremma breed, uh, kind of mastiff. Uh, they are the same in, in, in Spain, in France, in France are called the Patu. Uh, they are the same in, in, in Serbia, in Turkey. It's the same kind of breed that comes from the Central Asian steppes, you know, kind of mastiff-like heavy animals. Those are awful animals to, ki to keep at home or uh, around you. They look beautiful because white, fluffy, you know, they you can really think of having a, a sort of big bears with you, you know. But it, the truth of these animals is that they should not be kept close to humans. And shepherds know that very well. And shepherds take the pup as soon as it's born and bring it to the sheep, stay with the sheep. And if the pup come close to humans, shepherds throw stones at them, kick them in the nose. The, the, the dog must learn to hate humans and to love sheep. Then is a good guarding dog. So you see the variety of, of raising a dog pup is immense, depending on what you want from him. So in your experience, how well does a guardian dog work? I mean, how capable are they of protecting livestock from wolves? They work very, very well if you know how to handle the dog for that. If you think that is a machine, like, you know, I buy the dog and put it there and then go to sleep happy because the dog does his job, then you are completely wrong. <laughs> you have not understood what they are supposed to do. The dog is supposed to be there and bark. That is job, not to fight the wolf. There is no story if a wolf and a dog even a big shepherd dog fight one-to-one, -one, the wolf would win. And what about the Irish wolfhound? <laughs> the Irish wolfhound, first of all, are not a defense dog. They are running dogs to, to chase the, the wolf, first of all. And second, they would never go one-to-one. -one. They would go several 
Irish wolfhound against the wolf pack. So if I go back to the, to the guarding dog, the guarding dog story is that he's supposed to bark and call the attention of the shepherd who actually has to be nearby and comes with a stick or with a gun and chase the, the, the wolf away. Every, every, every dog is a different story. Yes, I, I agree with you, the Irish wolfhound, but also the, the Seluki in, um, is a beautiful dog, you know, very fast and, and ancient and nice and was selected to chase animals, not to kill them, but, you know, but certainly to chase them. These days, being a shepherd doesn't really seem to be a high-trending occupation. How is it in Italy? Are there still any shepherds left or? No, even in Italy, I mean, um, nobody wants to be a shepherd anymore. Or, or you want to be a shepherd, uh, you know, sleeping at home and uh, going up to the mountains and check your sheep uh, once every uh, few days. Uh, and that's why you, want, you don't want to have wolves and bears and any other large carnivores around. I mean, the mountains do not belong to shepherds only, it belongs also to the people in the, in the cities who want to have mountains and forests and bears and wolves. And people in the city produce the money that uh, most of the time keep the shepherds' uh, life up with, through subsidies. It has to be a common decision, not just one stakeholder taking over. Are there any successful examples of countries that actually manage that situation well? Well, where we never uh, eradicated wolves and bears, we do have good example of coexistence. Most of the Balkans are like that. Central Italy is like that. We do have uh, about 60 bears, less than an hour driving from Rome. 60, not six. And so with a lot of, uh, in the same national park where we do have 60 bears, we do have at least 70 wolves. And we do have two million people visiting the park every year and never one accident, never one. And we do have shepherds there with sheep. And, and so there are examples. Of course, you, you can't repeat the same examples everywhere because every situation is different one, you know, different living condition, different, different economies and different things. But if we work together, there are many options for coexistence. Of course, you don't want to have wolves downtown Rome at the center. <laughs> so coexistence has some limits. I love wolves. I've been working for wolf conservation all my life, but I agree that there are certain areas where you don't want them. And so we have to get rid of them. I would never be able to do that, but let somebody else kill them. I would bet that throughout your career, you've been on some pretty amazing exploratory trips where you followed wolves. Do any of those stand out? Any memorable stories you could tell us? Oh, well, I have many, many stories, so I don't know which one. Probably the very first time I saw wolves in the wild without the aid of, uh, of radio, radio callers. That was just at the beginning of my work in, in central Abruzzo in an area that was not protected yet. And I was uh, uh, living in a small hut, uh, wooden hut in the mountains, and I was going back to the hut. And suddenly I heard... Uh, this, this sound, which I'd never heard before, uh, unsolicited, and say, well, this is a howl, a howl of a pack. It's actually, it's quite close. So I actually walked toward that, and it was a big, uh, no, actually a small ridge. So I slowly crawled up to this ridge and picked out, and in a small valley below, there were six wolves 
playing all the time. Playing all the time with them, just running one after the other, and it was fabulous, and then stopped and howled. And that is a, one of my most vivid memories. So then, of course, and through radio tracking, I watched Wolves many other times. Another great moment was uh, on Ellesmere Island when I went there with Dave Meach, and we, I spent a month with a pack of wolves without radios, just following them. And when I say following them is uh, two meters away. It is impressive, you know, just to, to live with a pack of wolves. Uh, they just don't, don't bother you. You don't bother them. We, we made a decision of never get out of our motorbike. I mean, it's a, it's a quad, never get out of a quad. They don't even know a, a man walking. They, they just see humans on, on quad. And, they, and we follow them. And so I watched them. I watched the mother, the pup, the grandmother, and chasing muskox and all this sort of thing. And it's, it's fantastic. Despite all the things you read on books, you come away with, with emotions and, and, uh, and feelings and the information that you would never be able to, to get if you stick to books. Before you come to the adjective uh, aggressive, I can have a list of at least another hundred adjectives attached to, to walls. They play all the time. They play. They play, they play, they play all the time. All the time. They are incredible. They're very happy animals if you leave them alone. Even the grown-ups? Is this not only puppyish behavior? Absolutely, even the grown-ups. They chase each other and they... It's a kind of making exercises, not only the pups, yeah. This is so amazing. This actually makes me think about all the strategies that people employ to guard their territory. I remember hearing about an Australian farmer who had some issues with dingoes. Being very environmentally friendly, he did not want to use any violent measures. So what he decided to do is to get some pups from the dingoes, raise them. And it turned out to be a very effective way for him because dingoes are super territorial. And he kind of raised a pack which later on protected his fields as if it was their own territory. And they would chew away other dingoes. Crazy idea. But do you think something like this could work with wolves? They are highly territorial. It could be. It could be. could try. Oh, yes. I would try. Certainly. You never know. It may fail, but you can also succeed. You know, don't ever undervalue uh, the flexibility and the capacity of wolves to learn. They learn a lot. And if they see an advantage in a new behavior, in a new situation, they will do it. They will do it. So how would you describe the current dog-wolf relationship? And what is the typical reaction when a wolf runs into a dog? Does it consider it to be prey, or, or is there something more? No, it's a prey. It's a prey. Actually, one of the most uh, uh, dangerous situations for a human to be attacked by wolves is whether it has a, a dog on a leech, because then, uh, then wolves would go, would go for, the, for the dog and uh, in doing that, they may also, you know, involve the, the human <laughs> attached to the leech. <laughs> but, you know, then you can also have a situation where the, you have a, an, a female in heat and then your reproduction is more important than food. And so you, instead of being a prey, they would mate. So far, so far, 
of all the cases that we have collected around the world of hybridization, it's always been a female wolf that made it with a, a male dog, not vice versa. But one case has been found of vice versa, just one case in the literature. But all the other cases are always a female wolf in heat alone, then uh, she would mate with a, with a with the dog. So this is one of the many things which really puzzles me about the wolf behavior. There is one breeding pair in a pack. And if that pack is bigger, for sure there are many other members who would maybe like to mate. Especially since uh, this can be perceived, as you mentioned, even more important than food. So how and who gets that under control? The the female in charge the so-called alpha female, I hate to call this alpha, beta, and, but anyway, the female, the most powerful female, she is the most aggressive wolf in the pack during the, the reproduction season. And she will keep the other female at bay. She will impede all the reproductions by the other females. They will try. Sometimes they succeed in sneaking when she doesn't watch. But otherwise, she would be strong enough and alert enough to keep them away for those few days. But be aware that the two, that the one reproduction, reproductive pair in a pack rule has been found wrong when there was a lot and lots and lots of food available. And so when the wolves were introduced in Yellowstone, for example, one pair of uh, um, reproduce, but also other females in the same pack reproduce because the amount of food available was so incredible. There were no other packs competing, only this pack alone in this paradise of millions of deer. So they all reproduce. So you have several females, several litter in the same pack. So you can have exceptions. Once again, evidence of the extreme flexibility of the wolf biology. I'm really curious with respect to the Yellowstone case. Were you surprised at the way things um, rebalanced, if you want to call it balanced, once the wolves were reintroduced? I mean, what were your expectations versus how things actually worked out? This is a very interesting story and uh, would take an hour of discussion only for this, but I will go very briefly. Before the reintroduction, the American uh, governments, I mean, the federal governments, uh, spent a lot of time and money to do all sorts of studies trying to predict what will happen when the wolves would be reintroduced to Yellowstone. In particular, they hired one of the best biologists of the time to produce the best model of a wolf-prey relationship, to predict what would happen to the deer of Yellowstone once the wolves were taken. A lot of money was spent on all this modeling. To make the story short, most of these models were wrong, <laughs> were proved to be wrong when the wolves finally were released. After the wolves have been released, certainly they had an impact on deer, on numbers of deer, on distribution of deers, on movement of deers, on reactions of deers to predators, and so on. And any classic ecological textbook would have predicted that once you introduce a predator, the prey would be affected, 
the food of the prey would be affected, the competitor of the prey would be affected. So that's normal ecology. But when for the Yellowstone, they invented a new word and people start to talk of trophic cascades and all the sorts of nice jargon, but it's old style, good ecology. What is not true though, is a lot of the story that has been told of the wolf becoming the keystone of the Yellowstone environment. The presence of, of wolves suddenly would have a ripple throughout the ecosystem, even changing the course of water because the presence of wolves would affect the beaver population. The beaver population would build new dams. The new dams would change the course of the river. The course of the river would change the vegetation. The vegetation would change the deer and so on, so on, so on, so on. Yeah, we love to spin myths and stories around wolves. Of course, the wolves have an impact on the ecosystem. Of course, they have it. But to tell the nice stories, you know, of everything depending on wolves and suddenly changing, of course, the presence of wolves reduce the density of coyotes. Reducing the density of coyotes, you certainly increase the number or density of uh, mice. And if you have more mice, you have more bird of prey. So you do have a lot of these effects. But one thing is to acknowledge the effect. Another thing is to suddenly making the wolves a sort of uh, the new god on earth. So you mentioned alpha and that you are not a fan of this concept of being an alpha wolf. Yeah. Same then with alpha dog, I presume. Yeah. What is your opinion on that topic? I'm not a uh, fan of uh, calling alpha female because uh, you can still use it, but you need to qualify this, this description. The hierarchy within a pack is much more flexible than uh, reflected by a rigid uh, series of uh, alpha, beta, gamma, whatever. Uh, using alpha, beta, gamma sends a sort of uh, stiffness message, you know, which is not. The hierarchy within a pack is very flexible. You may have a subordinate challenging the alpha all the time, or you may have the alpha taking decision only for hunting, but not bothering of any other opportunities for exercising as being the head or the alpha. You have a variety of roles. It is true that the two dominant animals are more often at the forefront of certain activities. But for example, you may have uh, an alpha male that is very dominant, but then when you see that pack hunting, you can see that most of the hunt is led by a subordinate who is probably better in hunting, but is not the true dominant or vice versa. You know, you can see the dominant animals uh, being dominant only at the time of reproduction and not bothering of being dominant the rest of the year. So, you know, yes, calling alpha and beta if you like, but be aware that there is a lot of flexibility in it. Yeah, this is something which I also really cannot understand. This is alpha and this is not alpha. Uh, but if we bring a dog into our home, into our family, and especially when there are no other dogs, what is it alpha against? Well, yeah, technically maybe uh, within the human family, but to me that just sounds way too far-fetched. Well, you know, people are obsessed by classifying and putting things in categories. 
and that's the only way to manage cows. And uh, <clears throat> but in science, we are used to manage cows. That's uh, our food. Yeah, this is what I call the IKEA principle. Yeah, <laughs> putting everything on shelves. Yes. So, if you could either go back into the past or, or further into the future, as far as you'd like, if you could see an event or a process which is still a mystery to you, or I don't know, just something that you would really be curious to observe, what would it be? No, in the future, I don't want to go. I refuse to to go into the future. I have no interest in finding out what happened in hundred years because uh, all my knowledge pointed to very bleak future. So I don't think uh, I don't think I want to see that. <laughs> I'm not interested. If I could go in the past. It depends. If you allow me to go in the past with the knowledge of today or not. <laughs> Let's say yes. Oh, if you say yes, then oh yes, there are many, many times where I would like to go back. But mostly, um, probably, I would like to go during the in the Greek and Roman time in, in Europe. That's uh, that's a time of uh, of excitement, of uh, relationship with nature that was very, very healthy. The logic of the Greek, the pragmatism of the Romans, it made uh, a very healthy relationship with nature. If you read uh, the classics of uh, the Greek and Roman philosophy, you see that they were much more advanced than we are <laughs> now in terms of relationship with nature. So yes, th that would be a nice time. And they, of course, had a very interesting relationship with wolves. They loved and hated them together. The wolf is a symbol of Rome, but they also killed the wolf. They had a healthy relationship, a respect, but also respect for uh, each other's boundaries. And if you cross the boundaries, well, I'll kill you. That's it. True. It does sound like a well-worked-out and tolerant relationship. Very tolerant. Very tolerant. A very good example of coexistence. Absolutely. Even though there were a lot of uh, environmental problems, even at that time, for sure. I'm not one to say that uh, was an ideal society at all. But um, I would have been curious to leave uh, that kind of uh, environment. Yes. So do you have any advice to people about animal welfare, wild or domestic? Well, uh, a kind of advice to pet lovers, dogs and, and cats, is actually useless because I know that they already know that their animals have uh, emotions. Something that scientists for a long time denied animals to have. But suddenly, in the last uh, couple of decades, things have changed. And now it's normal, even in science, to speak of uh, emotions for, for animals. But okay, if I can say something is to reinforce this message, just remind that your animal has your same emotions. And so you need to respect that. Don't expect the animals to behave as you want, but make an effort to behave as your animals want you to behave. Sounds like it's time for you to get a new dog. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Do you have a name already in mind? A name? No. But I'm certainly go for uh, the same breed. Which is? Which is a Grösser Schwarz und Weiße Münsterländer. Mm, I need to look that up, honestly. I don't think that I know this one. <laughs> it's very German. Yeah, it does sound very German indeed. And it's not known, even in Germany, it's not very well known. It's certainly 
outside Germany is basically unknown, but is a most wonderful animal because it's been selected for years and years on not on morphology, but just on, on, on behavior. It's good for anything. In Germany, they use it for hunting from deer to retrieving uh, ducks in, in the wetlands and for anything. And is the, just the most charming animals in a family. And yet, when you are out with that dog, it's just uh, like having your uh, sense multiplied by hundreds. He can show you millions of other things that you, you don't even notice when you walk around. But he, if you watch him, he, he will show you all of them. I kind of feel this is where I'm headed now, trying to understand better how dogs feel, how do they perceive the world, and hopefully preparing myself to be a better potential dog parent. Yeah, but if, but if I have a dog, it will come at a cost, at a cost which is not trivial. The cost is that I'm living now in this house which is in the middle of a forest, and I do have hares in my gardens. I have red, uh, red deer at uh, 100 meters away. I have fallow deer 20 meters away. I have birds, I have uh, porcupines, I have all of this. Now that the dog is dead, <laughs> now that I am without dog, the day I will have a new dog, all of this will disappear. I certainly hope and wish that you will find the right one. When the time is right, of course. Oh, and if you could send me the name of the breed, I would look it up immediately. Münsterländer. Münsterländer. Of the land of the land of Münster, around Münster, the town of Münster, is actually uh, a variation of a more ancient German breed, which is called the, the Langhaar. You probably heard of the Langhaar. Yeah, the long-haired one I do recall. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's all brown. They had this, this variation, and um, it was so good. They worked on that. They worked very nicely, very professionally. You don't find them in pet shop. You need to, to know where to look for them. There are very few, but it's great. Absolutely great. Thanks a lot, Luigi. Thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, and uh, good luck. You know, I would really like to see the wolf's expression if somebody brought him a Shih Tzu or a Pomeranian and told him that this is your descendant. Here you go. Wouldn't be much of an expression, more like a gulp and a lick. No, wolves wouldn't do that. Well, I don't know. I, but it would be tough to recognize the resemblance, for sure. Well, after this episode, I think you know much more about wolves than you did before, don't you? Well, I guess I still have a lot to learn about wolves. Maybe there's some wolves wandering around Berlin. In fact, I'm pretty sure there are. Considering all the wildlife that is wandering around Berlin. Yeah. It could very well be wolves as well. Shall we say thank you? Absolutely. And our special thanks go to... Goes to... Oops, my English. <laughs> Forgive you. <laughs> it's better than my Lithuanian. Let's just put it that way. And your special thanks to Luigi Boitani. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. I hope we get to walk through the woods with you and your dog someday. Your new dog. Best of luck. Ciao.